Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Ashley. My pronouns are she, her, and I am joined by Lily Mead to talk about her novel, The Shadow Sister, particularly the idea of being the perfect victim and difficult sister relationships. Lily, thank you for joining us today. Hi, my name is Lily Mead. My pronouns are she, her, and I am so excited to be on this podcast. For me, feminism really comes down to intersectionality. One of my favorite quotes, but I don't remember exactly the name of the person who said it, but I am not free until every woman is free. Yes, yes. There are just so many different layers. And I feel like it's very easy for feminism to be just, let's get women in the workforce. Let's get me in a position where I feel successful and not held back. In order to have that success for different people in different circumstances, sometimes relies on the oppression of others. We only rise higher collectively when we are fighting for everybody and not just one person. Because it's very easy to topple the winds of a single group without like a full foundation holding it all up together. Yes. And what is The Shadow Sister about? The Shadow Sister is about two sisters, obviously, (laughs) who do not get along. The opening line of the book is, my sister is a bitch, but that doesn't mean I want her dead. And that kind of gets across their relationship with each other. But then one of the sisters goes missing. And when she returns from her disappearance, she's changed in ways that trauma alone can't explain. And the book is about figuring out what happened to her and who she is now, but it's also about the relationship and the bonds that hold us together. And how has the idea of a perfect victim shown up in society in your eyes? Well, when I wrote this book, I said this a couple times now, I was writing this book during the Gabby Petito case. Mm -hmm. So it was impossible not to be thinking about the media discussions that were going on around her case during that time. There was a lot of talk about how much attention she was getting versus other missing people of color and indigenous women who had gone missing around the same time, people to this day who have not been found. And in this, as growing up as like a woman, I have dealt with my own problems of not being the most important victim. When my family was robbed, the police interrogated me even though my items were stolen and I was 13 years old. And obviously it is very scary and a different experience for young Black people to interact with things, even when they are the victim of a crime, because we're just never given the assumption of innocence. And because Casey and Sutton are biracial, I could examine both sides of their father who had raised them to be outstanding, very impressive young Black women. And their mother, a white reporter, who knows exactly how she needs to position their entire family in order for people to care about her daughter enough to bring her home. 
and Sutton, who uh, was missing, she, her and Casey attend private school and they grew up on a side of town where, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, let's put the search people out immediately so that they can support her. So how these girls present themselves and being young, Black, biracial girls, there was still these trepidations of how they should be presented as opposed to like someone who would look like Gabby Petito. It's like, okay, why are we sitting on our butts? Why aren't we going and searching for her? And in not talking about the predicament of how a missing Black girl came to be, but regardless, it should be, let's find this Black girl. And that also shows up in other ways in the book. There's other Black girls that turn up missing who don't look like Sutton and Casey, but deserve the coverage and deserved the the manpower, if you will, to be found. Exactly. Sutton and Casey's mom, Madison, she gets very mad at Casey at one point for harming what she calls like the home again narrative because and Casey's just upset because she's mad at her sister and she's tired of pretending that she's perfect all the time. But as you read the book, you do realize that like that people will latch on to any perceived flaw and discount that as a reason not to care about someone. Maybe that's a way for us to like distance ourselves from tragedy. I've heard that like conspiracy theorists like to believe that things like Sandy Hook didn't happen because they don't want to comprehend that that is something that is capable of happening. They'd rather believe it's all a big conspiracy than believe that those are actual true tragedies that could happen. So, and Sutton isn't a perfect person. She does have some some secrets that had they come to light might have made people judge her or blame her for her disappearance. But I hope what I try to get across in the book and what I hope is that that isn't, that doesn't make somebody less worthy of being looked for. It doesn't make somebody less worthy of being found. It doesn't make someone less worthy of having justice. And why were you drawn to difficult sister relationships? Let's get into the story opening line. So funny. I get asked this question a lot because I, everybody's like, what does your sister think of the book? Especially that opening line. I don't actually have a sister. I have three brothers. But Sun and Casey's relationship definitely comes from my own personal sibling relationships. I know that it is really hard to get along with your siblings when you're really close in age. I've discovered that as I grow older, I have a better relationship with my brother than I did as a teenager. But I feel like we probably could have gotten over the things that we've gotten over since before we were fully grown adults with our brains done. I know that not every sibling relationship has fractures that can be healed. I wouldn't say that easily, but I felt like your sibling relationship is your first and one of your most foundational relationships. And it can mean so much for who you'll become as a person that I really wanted to show the strength of that first friendship that you ever get. And that even if you think that the other person doesn't care as much as you care about fixing it, they might. And you just have to be willing to be vulnerable enough to admit. I really enjoyed your acknowledgements. 
And something that you talked about was a history of financial insecurity. And can you share more about your story and what do you hope your story means to authors? Yeah, I have. I was raised in extreme poverty. I have been homeless twice and actually like literally three days before I got my book deal, we found out that our rent, because we were on Section 8, which is like government assisted housing, was raised, was going to raise from $500 a month to $2,000 a month because the rent moratorium of the pandemic was ending. And so there, I guess there was no more protections. And so I had to go from thinking about like, this could be my future. I'm going to sell a book. I'm going to finally get a step up to having to start a GoFundMe and, and beg for people to help me crowdfund my rent just so that I could last through the winter. And I told my agent, I said, I understand if this means that my chances on Starb are dead because we had just submitted my book to publishers two weeks earlier and I knew it did not look professional or reliable of me to be so raw and embarrassed and, and humiliated on, online. My agent said it didn't matter. And she'd come back and she'd emailed my editor and she's like, all right, I'm all settled in. I would love to see what you have. And that Friday morning at 10 a.m., my agent sent my book. And by 3 p.m. that day, I had a book deal. And she didn't even know about any of the stuff that was going on until after she had already got the publisher to agree to my deal. And, and right now, sitting on the porch of my house, that book deal is the only thing keeping me in this. Place. It is, it is very, very weird because I, I love the Shadow Sister and I am so excited and I feel so honored to be with Sourcebooks and the support that they have given me or even sending me on book tour next week. But it's very weird to be like packing for a multi-city book tour when even just the week before my internet shut off because we didn't have enough money to pay for it. And we're trying to save enough money to buy our house from our landlord, but it's almost impossible to put down a down payment when our rent is now 2,400 a month. But that's still cheaper than any other place in this area because my area is being gentrified. This house I live in used to be the ghetto. 15 years ago, but now I have neighbors that get put on silver and it, it's very unsettling and uncertain to you because I want Shadow to do so, so well, but this career is not really built for people who don't have money to come home to, who don't come from wealth or who aren't married to somebody who can pay the bills for them. And since I'm I have a chronic illness and I can't do another job. I put a lot of eggs in one basket. So that's why I have always tried to be as transparent as possible about how hard I'm working and the realities of my situation because I don't feel that writing should just be for the privileged. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I think it speaks to a lot about the idea of what being an author is like, and yes, it's a, you're having a joyous, momentous moment. The Shadow Sister is a fantastic novel, but you're also dealing with the realities of your, your, your history, your financial insecurities. So it's, it may feel hard to enjoy the joys, 
because you're also bogged down with the lows and the consistency that you've experienced with financial insecurity. Your story is going to bless a lot of people and to help people understand that this, as you said, that this profession is not necessarily for those who are really for people who have the financial security to pursue their dreams. You also shared in your acknowledgments that Taylor Swift helped you in in a financial support. Can you please share that story with us and how has that impacted you? I can imagine immensely. Yeah, I, I am obviously a huge Swifty. I guess professional Swifty is almost my brand. When the pandemic started, I was really scared for my mother because my mother is in her 60s. And because of our financial insecurity, she's always doing like gig, gig work when she should be retired. I feel almost ashamed that I haven't been successful enough for her to enjoy her retirement age. And at the beginning of the pandemic, she was doing Uber Eats. And right before lockdown really began, she got a really bad cold that we thought might have been COVID. It turned out it wasn't, but it knocked her out like completely. And my mom is a really, really strong person. I like to joke that she had made to suck my energy from me because she's just so much more of a go-getter, has so much more energy than I ever do. And so after getting that cold, I was terrified for her to be interacting with people. So to put herself out there, I was terrified for that. I did not want her to get sick because I did not think that she would make it. This was far, far before any vaccines or successful treatments had been figured out. And so I talked about that online and how scared I was, but I I didn't know how we were going to make our bills if she didn't do that. So, but my mom is also an incredible seamstress. She's been sewing since she was 10 years old. So she's been doing it for half a century. And we decided to try and make fabric masks and sell them because this was before they were widely available. But at the point where people were like, okay, this is probably a good idea. And so we made a Twitter post with a video of me turning on one of these masks my mom made. And I said, hey, we, will, we can make these. We can, we can send them to you. And I have a pretty good following on, on social media, like 4,000 4, on Twitter. And so we started getting some trickles in of some sales. And my mom, that first afternoon, and she was like, how are the sales? I had been going through my PayPal emails to see what orders we had because they were in the notes. I had to write them down and then give them to her. And I came across one that said, hey, Lily, I've seen the struggles you talked about your family going through. And I hope this gift of $3,000 can ease your strain. Thank you so much for all the support that you've given me over the years your friend, Taylor. And it was from Taylor, Taylor Swift. Burton, I am honored. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's such a sweet story. And I've seen Taylor online. She's helped people, helped her, people in her audience with that. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I joked that I was already annoying before, but that I would be insufferable about her after that point. I, I find that it's, a really valuable form of help. Rich people can donate money to like charities, but direct action 
giving money directly to people who need it and trusting them to do with it. I, we wouldn't have been able to pay our rent those first few months of the pandemic. And my mom would have had to put herself out there. And because of the attention her money brought us, we were able to kickstart our mask making business. And we made and sold over 10,000 masks that year. So I'm always going to be grateful for Taylor. She gave me a security and safety in a time where almost nobody had it. And I don't think I would be here and I don't think I would have this book deal without that support at that time. Wow. And so I what would like to know what's an organization you would like to amplify to our audience? Melanin YA is one of my favorite literary ones. It was created during the summer of June 2020 as a way to boost books by Black authors and young adults. They have put out a call recently for financial support in trying to get an assistant to help them expedite and like bring up processes to a higher place. But I think Melanin White is a great resource in spreading word and supporting Black authors. Lily Mead, thank you for joining us to share your story, your work, and The Shadow Sister. At Feminist Book Club, one of our favorite genres of nonfiction is learning the stories of the women behind famous or powerful men. So I am thrilled to share a brand new book with you. Parachute Women, Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, Anita Pallenberg, and The Women Behind the Rolling Stones by Elizabeth Winder. These four women worked tirelessly behind the scenes to help shape and curate the image of the Rolling Stones. This book is a beautiful, comprehensive group portrait of four women who were marginalized by the male-dominated rock world of the late 60s and early 70s, finally giving the women the credit they deserve for the impact on one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Even if you're not a Rolling Stones fan, you'll be blown away by the audacity of these women, and you'll love the rock and roll stories Elizabeth Winder shares in these pages. Perfect for readers of Girls Like Us, Parachute Women by Elizabeth Winder is out now from Hachette Books. Thank you for sponsoring today's podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Jordi. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm joined today by Alana, a fellow contributor to talk about a book that has taken the bookish community by storm, and that is The Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. We mainly wanted to get into this conversation to see if the read was worth the hype, but before we get into all of that, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the premise of this novel, 20-year-old Violet Sorengale was supposed to enter Basgaith War College as a scribe, but her mother, the commanding general, has ordered Violet to join the hundreds of candidates striving to become the elite of Dervari, dragon riders. However, with fewer dragons willing to bond than cadets, most would kill Violet to better their own chances of success. The rest would kill her just for being her mother's daughter, like Zayden Ryerson, the most powerful and ruthless wing leader in the Ryder's quadrant. There's also war looming around them and historical secrets being unearthed that make the military leaders seem a little suspect. So first things first, what were your initial thoughts? And did you think the book lived up to the hype? Okay, full transparency, I think I were ready to get Having finished it like 48 hours ago, I think I would read it again. Going in, I was like, this is giving 
20 teen girly pop fantasy main character. But there were about four or five times reading it where I screamed bro out of genuine disbelief and surprise. And for me, that's deep. That's serious. That's like it wasn't a was it more peace? No. But it was a banger. I kind of went into this read a little blind, other than just everybody was talking about it and it was supposed to be the greatest thing. And when I started reading it, I was kind of on a roller coaster of emotions because I would read something and I would think to myself, oh, that's kind of cringe. And then I'd be like, oh, okay, like this is pretty good. Or like, oh, wow, okay, like this is getting into it. And then it would bring me back to like something happening back at the military college. And I would just think, oh, like, I don't know about this. But for me, this book was a mix of Divergent and The Hunger Games meets Dragon War College. But then all of the kids are talking about how they use sex as a coping mechanism. And I was like, this is very interesting. So for me, it was kind of like my childhood YA dystopian novels being turned up a little bit. And I, for me, I, I go back and forth between did it live up to the hype? Or not, because I feel like the entire time it was like everything was happening so fast. There were so many things going on in this universe. And I felt like every chapter was a different saga. And there was so much to keep track of. And sometimes it was a little hard for me. I see that it was a little slow sometimes with the sort of going through her treating thing. And I see why it was necessary, but I feel like it takes a while for it to sort of take off. And I definitely agree with the. Like, Diversion and Hunger Games were, like, two books that were super at the top of my head and I was reading it. There's the iconic hairstyle. There's the love triangle. There's the mild questioning of the government. The I'm so pale and frail and short and, like, I don't know. I'm not as strong as my sister or, like, Katniss's thing was, like, oh, I'm, like, a brunette and she's a blonde and she's so pure and I'm you know, blah, 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 blah. There was a lot of that, but I think the badassery of dragons knocks it aside a little, like, but it, it still takes us a while to get there. Yeah, I will say, I was having a hard time connecting with a lot of these characters for whatever reason, but as soon as we were introduced to the dragons, and I, I think I'm going to butcher one of their names, but Tarn, the big black one, kind of getting to know him, I was obsessed. I'm like, this This is my favorite character, I think. I agree. So good. So I think he's my favorite character too, but he was closely followed by Satan. But once you get into the tea, uh, the setup in the arrangement, it comes very, very clear. I really like the parallels of her having however things, I think it's like tyranny. But Black Dragon, so Violet is the Black Dragon and then Satan and his dragon. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. I, so what we're talking about is, spoiler alert, but the way it works is the dragons that these two people have, Violet and Zayden, who's supposedly supposed to be like her enemy and wanting to kill her because at this college, you're allowed to kill off the weakest people or just whatever you want to do. It's kind of crazy. But Zayden's dragon is mated with the dragon that chooses Violet. And because of that, that kind of bonds these two people together. Because if anything happens to their dragons, it also kind of happens to them. 
And as soon as that happened, I was like, I'm hooked. I'm here for all of this. And they have a little baby dragon that they adopted. And I was like, this is just amazing. Yeah. When she got both dragons, on. Yeah. That was so cool. I know. And I was like, oh, the little little baby dragon. I'm going to butcher that name, too. It was something, something with an A. I had no hope for that one. Yeah, a lot of these characters' names, especially when it comes to the dragons, are kind of hard to pronounce. I think it's supposed to be like Irish or Gaelic names. I think I heard somebody say that. I'm initially that was kind of prepared for that going into like this fantasy, you know. But I think like the people's names are like pretty chill. Yeah, I mean, the dragon names are definitely. What did you think of Violet as the main lead? First of all, and I was very serious about determining how old these characters were supposed to be because she kind of comes out the gate. Like, God, I haven't been late in a while. Damn, his ass is kind of fat. Like, I would smack that. Like, she kind of has that mentality, but she's... But it, it, as I was reading it more, I realized that it, I think the tone of it is supposed to be, like, kind of comical. Like, she's sort of, like, a... She's a little goopy because she's working with what she's got. And I really appreciated that despite the fact that a lot of the first half of the book was her, not necessarily to herself, but in response to people being like, oh, you're so weak and pale and blah, 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 blah. I feel like at the beginning, she was presenting herself as like, as no, that's not true. Oh, just let me do what I need to do. But sort of believing it in her head to like about the middle of the book where she was like, maybe I'm not. And then at the end, truly owning it. The thing that I think comes up a lot with characters like this and books like these is that that will be established that they finally have confidence for whatever reason in whatever they're doing. And then as soon as a man enters the picture, they go back to the, oh, I don't, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm strong and you're so strong and I'm just blah, 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 blah. And I didn't appreciate that she grappled with that in that same way, but I feel like it was erased pretty quickly. And I enjoyed the partnership of her and Zayden toward the end. Zayden, I think, is actually, like, top-tier character because I felt like he was an actual normal person for, like, the majority of the book. Like, I think he came in hot, like, I'm going to murder you. But even then, the reason wasn't crazy. Violet's mother basically sent the order to get his father executed because his father was the leader of the rebellion. And all the rebellion kids are now forced to go through these trials and become dragon riders because it's the easiest way to sort of kill them off without executing them. But it still gives them an opportunity to sort of fight for their survival. So, like, I hear you, buddy. I hear you. But even then, he was the logical person that'd be like, well, even you're not your mom. It's not like you were there sending the orders. And I really thought that between him, Dane, and all, sort of all the characters and all of their griefs and grievances, he was like a very real human being for the entirety of the book, and I appreciated that. Yeah, I feel like Zayden was the only character where when I was reading about anything that he was doing, I I never got annoyed with him. Like, everything made sense and whatnot. Violet, I agree. She was definitely a fake-it-till-you-make-it type of person, and she did it in a smart way. And she did struggle a lot with being... Like, because she didn't even want to be with the dragon rider. She wanted to be a scribe. And then she had to go up against, like, the memories of her sister and her brother who came before her, and they were dragon riders, and they were supposedly 
like one of the best. And so she was kind of comparing herself to them as well as not knowing what to do. And the trials that they kind of go through in order to get to the point where they call it threshing, where they bond with their dragons, if a dragon chooses you, is very intense. In any of these situations, people can struggle with not feeling confident enough to do whatever the thing is. But once she kind of got into her groove and she was proving it to herself, and not that she needed to prove it to anybody else, but then she would still kind of come back to an almost woe is me perspective. And that to me was just kind of annoying. But while like going through these trials, I will say I highlighted something and it was the death of a character and her name was Luca. And she was just so rude and annoying. And I said, like, that was the best death that I've ever read in a book. Dude, it was on some Tari Piri. It was, oh, honestly, when, as soon as they got through, like, the introduction to the dragons, when they did the walkthrough, I was like, got me hooked in there. That was crazy. The, the signets, her, the, her getting the power of electricity. Or lightning, I think it's actually what it is. Lightning. Mm-hmm. Just the whole should be. That's when the smut begins roughly there. I would like to talk about the smut. All right. What are your thoughts? I struggle reading sex scenes because I feel like there's such intimate, like, moments. And I kind of don't want to sit through them for that reason. It doesn't matter what book it is. The one book that I think role is like top tier sex scene is The Lumber by Margaret Dura because I feel like it encapsulates like the physical aspects and the like mentally emotional aspect of being in a sort of relationship with somebody. But with this book, Twilight is what it reminded me of. Twilight when they get married and you're like destroying the band and it's like shredded up. It was like that. But like Violet has like She's knocking out windows. Forest fires are starting in the back. Also, Bruce Almighty, if you've ever seen Bruce Almighty, very much like that. And I thought that it was kind of comical, but I also felt like the writing was really accurate portraying that power in that sequence. And I wanted to know how you felt reading it. For me incorporating her signet powers into the scene was like a little too much for me and the fact that so they definitely had chemistry Zayden and Violet throughout this whole thing and I didn't like how it started off like getting kind of in that intimate realm because of the dragons so when these people bond with their dragon They can like communicate telepathically and they can feel the things that their dragons are feeling. So since Violet and Zayden's dragons were mated, that meant when their dragons were doing it, they kind of had these desires to get together as well. And to me, that felt a little weird. I didn't really like that. But as far as like smutty scenes go, I didn't think it was bad. I do think there was like kind of a disconnect between who Violet was like outside of the bedroom and like who she was in the bedroom I just like didn't feel they like authentic her voice during this smut was like a projection of who I think 
I always thought she was underneath it because she never came off as like, I never believed that she really thought that she was a weakling or anything like that. I think that people told her that and because there were people who were like training their whole lives to do this. It didn't feel forced or anything, but it was like, oh, well, okay, so this is happening now. I do like the fact that Zayden was very clearly like, like literally agreeing with you, like our dragons are doing this. I don't know if this is like a genuine thing that's happening. I think we should probably figure that out. But I do believe that she has been showing interest in this dude since probably day three of being in this. So I believed her in, but I did, I did appreciate the fact that she was like, whoa, whoa, let's, this is, you're like day one in this. I love your energy, but we do need to figure out if this is like a real consensual thing or if you're just like fighting for your life. And I like that he waited for that to be very clear before he made any books. Yes. And I will say like after they did it the first time, they kind of had a conversation on what they were, so to say. And because they weren't on the same page, they didn't get together for like a month or so. I believe it was like that. And I will say like the whole time I was even pining after this guy, Zayden, I was like, come on, Zayden, just like get on board with it. Here, definitely, he's kind of nice. I see the appeal. He's like the leader of the rebels, like within their little, like the rebel kids. I thought he was like a genuinely good squad leader. I think that him... His decision-making, like, as a leader was really cool. And I love the Midnight Sun era ending of the book, where you get his perspective. I love getting the man's perspective in, like, a heterosexual romance-related thing. I am curious to see how that's going to translate in Iron Flame, because it literally was the last chapter of the book where he gets to say, like, his piece. And I'm not even sure it was super necessary. It was just kind of like a... You know, just something that happened. Almost throughout the entire time, he seemed much more favorable, favorable to Dane. Yeah, Dane, to me, came off as a dweeb and annoying. And I was like, oh, it seemed like they were trying to paint him as a guy who had, like, a pure heart and was only looking out for Violet's best intentions and trying to be there and be supportive. But then... A little bit before halfway, I was like, this is coming off now as kind of sinister. And like, he he's not going to be a good dude. But yeah, I really hope in the next books that she does, I don't want to see an on-again, off-again relationship. That will annoy me. So right before we get like probably the biggest surprise of the book, which is the, beard, like, the last two lines of the book, then a chapter before Zayden's, like, sort of, like, epilogue almost. Or actually, a chapter before that, we get, we, she, like, finds out that Zayden has been basically working with the other side, the country that their country has been in war with for a long time. And she had already sort of been seeing the signs they take these classes where they're debriefed on like war plans and they notice over and over and over again since the first day in the class that a lot of the stuff wasn't adding up. But part of it is that like if Zayden was ever caught, it was murdered. Basically, they're tied to each other in a way that like if one of them dies, they're both pretty much down for the count, right? So I think part of her, her reaction was like, you get killed for this. 
Her mother is like the head general of like their entire army. She's also a little bit of a like emotional menace. And so I think she was really, really stressed out. But I was sort of frustrated with her reaction then because it's like if you thought about it logically for like literally four seconds, you would conclude by yourself what's going on because you were already thinking it. And we know that's what you've been talking about for 500 pages. Literally. <laughs> but the chapter after that, I feel like there's an understanding where they finally, for like the first time in the book, are both eye to eye on the fact that like, A, there's a romantic dynamic there that they can't really deny regardless of where it's coming from. But even if it's fake, which I think they have decided that it isn't, it's still reliant on their lives. So I'm really hoping that now that we have that conclusion, that it won't come back up again in the next book. And they'll more so be trying to work out how to keep this dynamic while still achieving their goals. Because a part of their, a part of the contract of what their relationship calls for is like their dragons can't even be apart for two to three days. That's like a big, big thing for them. So I'm really curious to see how that is because I don't think they can go back. Like, I think they're they're officially outlawed. Oh, yeah. In terms of, like, the, coming back to the school and stuff, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious because I think I saw somewhere that this is supposed to be four or five more books in the series. And so while I am looking forward to seeing what happens... I'm also thinking to myself, what could possibly be happening to take that long? You know what I'm saying? Like, obviously, there's probably going to be a war. We're going to go through the war and all of that. So maybe, I think the last one they said was 600 years. Oh, yeah. So I guess I guess we could be in for the long haul here. But yeah, I'm really curious to see what all comes next. Especially because at the end... We find out that somebody who is supposedly dead isn't dead, and that changes things. And it also got me thinking about how Violet's mom and her, like, how her dad ended up dead. Like, is he really dead, or is he not? Mm. Like, Mm. because Violet's dad was kind of giving her hints and secrets about everything that was supposedly folklore that came out, turned out to be true. And Violet's brother was the one who was supposedly dead, comes back to life. And we find out that he's been working with the rebels. And so it's like, okay, I guess a lot could be happening that we just don't know about right now. I think the placement of the folktale books throughout the entire story was so cool and so well placed because it's, it's like a, every time it comes up, it's like, oh yeah, like I forgot about that. And then it ends up being like, like a like a bomb in the middle of the book. Yeah, I'm super curious to see what happens. I didn't realize that many books were supposed to be there. Someone had mentioned that to me in person in conversation. I couldn't really find I couldn't really find it because they've just been promoting Iron Flame a lot. And so I thought it was like, oh, it's like a duology, blah 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 blah. And I can see it being a duology. I can see it being a trilogy. That fourth book, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we're doing spinoff or what. Because especially every book is going to be almost 600 pages. I don't know what we're going to... Well, I guess if like it, it does go past like the three or four, we could get... Brennan, I believe, was Violet's brother. Yeah. 
Brennan, we could be getting Brennan's perspective on things kind of behind the scenes, like a spinoff type. Even, yeah. Maybe even something from the other country. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to see what is actually... Because I guess another plot point would be like if if both countries are equally at war with each other and both choosing to ignore these creatures, that's also another thing. Because we also have to think about like why are they stealing this magic in the first place? Yeah. So many, so many questions. But I kind of want to circle back a little bit to some of the deaths that happen in this book. I I was kind of trying to think about you know, if you're just allowed to kill off anyone in your squad, or no, you weren't allowed to kill it. No, were you allowed to kill in your squad? No one in your squad, but I think... Like, like in others. In, yeah, like in your wing on the mat, or like if they fell off, or if they quote-unquote fell off or something, you're blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Or if they were the weakest link, you could do that. And I just feel like that would be hard to kind of build a bond between all of these people that you're eventually going to have to work with once you're out of this college but there were some deaths that I enjoyed like Luca's and then Jack's finally at the end oh he was terrible oh my god but the one that hurt the most was Liam's that was heart-wrenching and I almost cried here I am in a warning running freight ocean, screaming, crying, throwing up. That's literally so hard. That sucks so hard. And he was so nice and he, so chill. Yeah, he was like what I wish Dane were. Yes. Like, Liam was genuinely like a good guy, a good friend to Violet, looks out for her in like the best way, even though he was kind of told to look out for her. But he was just he was so good. Dude was definitely stressed for like the duration of him having to watch. But yeah, and and the sequence of events that happened, and I think it was almost, it was almost like the the least brutal death too. Like I felt like you watched him just drop. It and was it sucks. Yeah, it was slow and painful and drawn out. And you kept holding on to hope that something would change and it would be all right. But we didn't get that. This was every, for the most, honestly, I think every death was a death that I wasn't prepared to happen, whether you wanted it or not. Like she's, she was really good at creating death scenes that were not predictable or even executed in a way that you could almost imagine. Mm-hmm. Like Lucan death, fire, and then Jack's death is when she because we didn't she didn't even have a signet almost. Yeah, that's when she like discovered it, and she just let her rip and bro got sniped by lightning. That's fine. Like I'm sure it sucked for him. Didn't even see it coming, and it was such an appropriate. Death for a character that we've been hating since page like three. And here we are in the long haul. And this dude just, but also just everyone's reaction to him being dead. It was like ding dong, the witch is dead. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually goes back to what you were saying about how it's so interesting that they're allowed to kill and target each other when essentially they might be working together. 
And I think that's kind of what Zayden was saying. It's like he didn't need to be on the squad with anybody else. Like he didn't need to be battling anybody else. Like that's not a guy that's good for the way. You're talking about Jack? Yeah, yeah or that's what Zayden said oh, to yeah, yeah. Violet after she was like, I just killed oh, somebody. Yeah, and he was like, no, nah, it's okay. And then she was kind of getting into her feelings about killing people and she never wanted to kill people. And that was another point where I was kind of annoyed with her. I was like, yeah, obviously you don't want to kill people. But at the same time, it's like in this book, in these situations, like you got to do what you got to do. I think I was also annoyed because I, I, I think my biggest issue with her as a character is that sometimes for a character that's built up as being so logical and so smart and so quick on her feet, the moments where that would lapse wouldn't make sense because they were not. See, she put the whole book being like, I'm not dying today. So don't even worry about it. And then you kill somebody who's like getting ready to kill you. And you're like actively trying to hold down your bombing and like freaking out and being like, oh, like just the, the narrative of her being like, I never wanted to, you know, I never wanted to hurt people. Felt like it came out of nowhere too. Like I couldn't really connect it to like anything that she'd been grappling with prior. But it's like, yeah, like, I understand that you didn't want to be here. That's that's clear. But it, I feel like your character would have accepted this as the possibility as soon as you got over the pair of it. Yeah. And especially because, like, she she had been attacked in her sleep. And, like, I know she didn't want to hurt anybody. And that's why, like, she would try to poison people that she was fighting so that they would get weaker and then she wouldn't have to do anything. But it's like, you know, the end game here is, like, you're going to go out and kill people. So it's like, while you don't have to get used to that, you kind of have to, like, accept it. But even then, she was, like, kind of loosey-goosey with her knives as well. Like, we know that she's a really good knife thrower. And when she needed to intimidate somebody, she was more than prepared to nearly chop whatever they had going on off in order to be, like, get away from me. Yeah, that's so true. And now, like, the more I'm thinking about it, I'm like very confused between her kind of being all woe is me and then out of nowhere just doing that. I think, but I think, I don't know if this is where the author was coming from, but electrocuting somebody to death in the middle of the air is also like a lot, I assume. Yeah. Especially when like this, the stressful five minutes that led up to that point. Because, I mean, if that's what the conversation is about, it's like my power of being able to summon lightning. Like, there's no light, go to sleep, it's going to be okay. Like, you're instantly dead in, like, a fiery explosion. Yeah, I wouldn't want to experience that and find out. I did, I did notice that there's only one Black character, and she's, like, this supportive best friend who's also, like, Usually, what I well, not usually, but like often when I find in in books where that sort of the setup is like not only is the character like one of the only characters of color, but also they hold like a lot of other diversity inside of them as well. So like she's queer, but she's really strong, she's really pretty, and like things like that, which is something I notice. It's not my favorite, but I do like the character. I think she had like. She didn't necessarily have a story of her own, but I feel like she stands up on her own, which was great for me. I, like, I love Rhiannon. Or Rhiannon. And I like, I do like that she girl boss her bedroom. You mentioned that they would cope, cope using sex, which is not how I processed it when I read it, but exactly what it was. 
uh, whether it be in celebration or just sort of like dealing with the day-to-day life. But yeah, I love her rotating door of partners. I thought that was very girl boss of her and yellow. So that's another character that I liked a lot. Yeah, and I think she was really good for Violet too. Because I don't think Violet would have gotten to her stronger moments if Rhee wasn't there. I like Rhee. That's cute. But yeah, she and I feel like she was very, she was very frank. But I also think their friendship was like pretty, just like a real nice friendship between two women. Like it was just really chill. They had each other's back. You know, they weren't afraid to get their hands dirty for each other if it came if it came to be, there was never, there was never a time where somebody's taking advantage of one another, which is not how women relationships are, but it's often how they're portrayed. So for them to just have like a good, fun time, cracking jokes, you know, giving each other high fives. And also just the regular, the regular exchange of like, here's how to survive, here are my strengths, this is what I can do for you, and this is how I can help you is really great. Like that camaraderie. And it also just having that, that just, I think, honestly, regardless of who the characters were, just having somebody from day one in that situation that you knew wasn't going to kill you, or yes. they heard that somebody was trying to plan and they would have let you know, must have been really great. Yeah, I completely agree. So when during the sex scene, during the sex, it's super small. During the sex scene, she mentioned, I noticed, I think, almost indirectly, response to like the Sarah J Mass and like the Colleen Hoover thing. For a lot of the sex scenes, she would be like, we are protected and we've talked about it. And this is also verbally, both of us are consenting and now we're going to perform the action. She referred to condoms in this universe as fertility suppressants. And I thought that that was very funny. I don't know why they would have needed a different term for it. In this universe, this is just like, this might just be a soul mission. I just thought that this was hilarious. And, but I do appreciate that it was shared in this, it is canon in this universe. That they're fertility suppressants. And I really like that they thought about that and they were planning ahead. That's funny you mentioned it because I remember reading that being like, huh, interesting. Okay. But I guess like I was just thinking, you know, like when I read fantasy, I'm like, this is just so otherly, like whole other worlds, whatever. And in my mind, I was like, they're taking these, I don't know, supplements or whatever to suppress that. I like that there is an easy, accessible contraception for the people with uteruses in the universe. I'm, I love that pro-choice movement taking place in this kingdom. I think that that's fantastic. It was good to see. That's all. All right. So if you were to rate this, what would you rate this book? And would you recommend it to people? Out of five? Sure. Okay. Ooh. I think it is a four. Because even through some of the cringy language, I'd been thinking about this book for a while. And I thought that it was really cool and had a lot of fun. And it was surprising. And it was adventurous. And there was a lot of stuff that I haven't really seen before in in this sort of area of fantasy. I thought there was a lot of new stuff, and I'm intrigued. I would say that I would also give it a four 
just because I think the first half of the book was too much of a roller coaster for me. And the the cringiness was just there throughout the entire thing. However, the second half, especially the last few chapters, were just so exceptional that I don't think it could be anything less than a four. I really like the whole dragon dynamic and the bonding dynamic. That like That's just so creative to me. I enjoyed it. It was refreshing. If you are definitely a fan of dystopia type stuff, you want to read about some dragons, you want a little smut, then this is definitely for you. Agree. If I ever see Dan on the street, it's on site. Like, there's no saving this dude if I ever saw this dude walking down the street. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say. Ireland comes out in November. Of this year? Yes. Definitely this year. Wasn't this book just released in May? I want to say it was a little bit earlier than that. Oh, yeah. November 7th, it says. Cool. 2023. So, there's a possibility that they will print enough copies this time. But I think due to the hype of the first one, that still, they still may fall short. If you're super, super interested, I will find a pre-order link wherever you can find it at this point. Fourth Wing is, is fighting for its life. It's still back-ordered. Bookstores are still... They're getting copies trickled in. You're not getting bulk deliveries of the book. So if you're interested in Iron Flame, I would say try to pre-order it earlier, but also feel free to utilize ebook and audiobook distributors. Alrighty, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye! Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.